Hello, wild wanderers, and welcome to winter. So as of the publishing of this this particular episode of the Dispatches from the Forest podcast, we are officially about eight days deep into winter here. The, the solstice was about eight days ago. Now, I, for one, like winter. I'm a big fan. Um, but I know a lot of people that aren't. And when I was a kid, I had a small card that depicted Winnie the Pooh and Piglet walking through the falling snow. And it's probably still in my childhood bedroom somewhere. But it also had a poem that, for whatever reason, has stuck in my memory for some 40-odd years. And so I always think of it about this time of year. And it goes like this. The more it snows, tiddly-pom, the more it goes, tiddly-pom. The more it goes, tiddly-pom, on snowing. And no one knows, tiddly-pom, how cold my toes, tiddly-pom. How cold my toes, tiddly-pom, are growing. And I don't know who said it first, but one of my other favorite winter sayings is, if you choose not to find joy in the snow, you will have less joy in your life, but the same amount of snow. Because most of us do have a choice when it comes to winter. We can choose to spend as much time as possible in the house, maybe buried under a mountain of blankets, or we can choose to bundle up and go outside to play in the cold and snow. And I'm an outside kind of guy, so I continue to spend a fair amount of time outside, even in the coldest days of winter. But what about our animal friends? How do they survive the winter? Well, that all depends on the animal. So let's take a look at the strategies that animals use to survive the winter. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Now, there are three basic strategies animals use to get through the winter. The first is simply to stay active, no matter how cold and snowy it might get. The second is to migrate. Some species have distinct breeding grounds where they spend the spring and summer, and winter grounds where they move to in the colder months. And these grounds can be several thousand miles apart, depending on the species. Other animals are what we call partially migratory, and only move as far south as they need to in order to survive. The third strategy is to hibernate, but as you'll learn in a little bit, there are different levels of hibernation. So what determines whether an animal stays active, migrates, or hibernates? Many people think it has to do with the temperature, that animals that migrate or hibernate just can't survive in the cold, but that's really not the primary reason. The primary reason has to do with food. Keeping warm during cold weather means burning a lot of calories. Animals that remain active during the winter are those that are still able to find enough food to meet their metabolic needs. So first, let's look at some of the animals that remain active during the winter and what they eat. If you put up a bird feeder, you're probably already familiar with many of the birds that remain active throughout the winter. There are too many to talk about all of them, but I'll just touch on three of the more common birds you might see at your backyard feeder. Chickadees, nuthatches, and tufted titmice. All small birds, about the size of a sparrow, that will eat insects in the summertime, but in the winter subsist primarily on seeds and berries. Chickadees have a white breast and a black crown and throat patch. They generally grab a seed from your feeder, then take it to a nearby branch and hold it under their foot while they crack it open. Chickadees were named for their call, which sounds like chickadee-dee-dee. Although their normal call is a two-note Phoebe. 
Interestingly, researchers have determined that the shorter call often is a way of communicating to others about food, but the longer call is an alarm call, with the number of Ds indicating the level of perceived danger. A predator like a pygmy owl, a predator that's highly likely to eat small birds, averaged 4 Ds, or sometimes up to 23 extra Ds. In contrast to a gray owl, bigger but less likely to be able to catch the small chickadee, only warranted an average of 2 Ds. Only slightly larger than a chickadee, white-breasted nuthatches are somewhat stocky with a large head, short tail, powerful bill, and strong feet. It also has a black cap with a white face, chest, and flanks. The back and the wings are kind of a bluish gray, and the lower belly is often chestnut colored. Nuthatches are easily identified, though, by their behavior of feeding or descending trees in a head-down position, one of the only birds that do so. Their call is often described as sounding like a laugh or a giggle. Their name comes from their habit of taking a seed and jamming it into the crevice in the bark of a tree. Then they strike the seed with their bill until the seed cracks open so they can eat the kernel. Nuthatches are also known to cache excess seeds under loose bark or in crevices in trees. They also nest in cavities created by woodpeckers. And then there's one of my favorites, another cavity nester and cousin to the chickadee, the tufted titmouse. Their song sounds like they're saying, Peter, Peter, Peter. Tufted titmice have a white front and gray upper body outlined with rust-colored flanks. They have black foreheads and a tufted gray crest on their heads, kind of like a mohawk. And sticking with their heavy metal look, these little birds often line the inner cup of their nest with hair, sometimes plucked directly from living animals. The list of hair types identified from old nests include raccoons, possums, mice, woodchucks, squirrels, rabbits, livestock like horses and cows, pets like cats and dogs, and even humans. That's pretty hardcore for a six-inch bird. <laughs> Tufted titmice store food in the fall and winter. Usually their storage sites are within 130 feet of the feeder. The birds take only one seed per trip and usually shell the seed before hiding them. Many species of woodpecker also stay active during the winter, switching from insects to seeds. Suet feeders are a great way to attract woodpeckers to your yard. Suet blocks for birds consist of animal fat with seeds and sometimes berries embedded in them. Suet is high in calories, so it's a great way for birds like woodpeckers to meet the energy demands of staying warm in cold weather. Downy woodpeckers, which are the smallest species of woodpecker in North America, as well as red-headed woodpeckers, red-bellied woodpeckers, and the northern flicker are all common sites on suet feeders. But it's not just birds that stay active in the winter. Deer survive by browsing on twigs. Squirrels use tree cavities as a winter den and survive on the food they spent the fall burying. And if you want to learn more about the amazing memories of squirrels, check out episode three of this podcast. And then there are predators like the red fox. Red foxes are omnivores. They typically eat small mammals up to about eight pounds, but they will readily eat other plant material, especially fruit. When it's in season, fruits and berries can account for almost 100% of their diet. When hunting in snow or even thick grass, red foxes pinpoint their prey with excellent hearing, then leap in a large arc, known as a mouse pounce, which lets them reach the prey underneath. But what's truly fascinating is their overall success rate is just 18%, unless 
they're facing northeast. When facing northeast, the red fox's hunting success rate jumps up to 73%. So what's the difference? Well, foxes seem to be able to detect the Earth's magnetic field. By facing northeast, they line up with the magnetic field. This alignment, combined with their ability to pinpoint their prey by sound, lets them calculate the precise location and pounce with amazing accuracy, even through several feet of snow. So if you can't find enough food to stay active during the winter, you're down to two options, migration or hibernation. Migration comes in two basic forms, partial migration and long-distance migration. Partial migration generally involves only moving as far as necessary to survive. Long-distance migrators often move hundreds or even thousands of miles between summer breeding grounds and wintering grounds, and each strategy has its own pros and cons. Partial migration requires less energy, and partial migrators generally have a higher reproduction rate. However, these short-distance migrants are more vulnerable to predation and can sometimes find themselves caught in extremes of weather. Long-distance migration is energy-intensive and can be dangerous, but the upside is that the breeding grounds of long-distance migrators, often in the Arctic tundra, tend to have fewer predators. So let's look at some examples. The diet of bald eagles is over 50% fish, so they require open water in which to catch those fish. Bald eagles only migrate as far south as they need to in order to find open water. If you have open water, eagles are likely to stick around throughout the winter. The same is true for some subspecies of Canada geese. Some are long-distance migrators, nesting in the Arctic and wintering much farther south. But some are what we call resident Canada geese, spending most or all of their time in the lower 48 states and only migrating as far south as they need to. But don't get the idea that all migrators are birds. Elk will migrate about 100 miles between high elevation summer ranges and lower elevation winter range. Likewise, long-distance migrators come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Birds are triggered to migrate not by dropping temperatures, but by decreasing daylight. As the days get shorter, migratory birds start to display what's called migratory restlessness, a sort of heightened agitation as if they're excited to get started on their journey. Again, it makes sense. You don't want to wait until the food is completely gone before you leave. It's better to make sure that you'll be able to find something to eat along the way. After all, flying burns a lot of calories. Hummingbirds are some of the smallest long-distance migrants, and migration makes sense for them, since they feed on nectar and flowering plants are in short supply in most of the northern hemisphere in the winter. So most species of hummingbird that breed in the U.S. spend the winter in either Central or South America, in many cases, this includes a 500-mile non-stop flight across the Gulf of Mexico. Peregrine falcons have some of the longest migrations of any North American bird. Tundra-nesting falcons winter in South America and may move over 15,000 miles in a single year. I'll cover peregrines in more depth on a future episode. But when it comes to long-distance migrants, the Arctic tern takes the win. The Arctic Tern covers the entire circumference of the Earth each year, flying from Antarctica to the Arctic Circle and back again. In extreme cases, the birds may fly as much as 60,000 miles in a single year, a quarter of the distance to the moon. Part of the reason for the extreme length of the Arctic Tern's migration is that they don't follow a straight line. To save energy, they glide with the wind, which takes them in meandering loops as they wind their way between the top and the bottom of the globe. 
But again, not all long-distance migrants are birds. As I talked about in episode 6, some species of bats are migratory. Many ocean-dwelling species, like whales and sea turtles, migrate between Arctic and tropical waters. And caribou are thought to have the longest land migration, traveling over 3,000 miles a year between their winter ranges and their calving grounds in the far north. And of course, don't forget the monarch butterfly. The monarch is the only butterfly known to make a two-way migration like birds. While other butterflies can overwinter, either as larvae, pupa, or even as adults in some species, monarchs can't survive the cold winters of northern climates. Now, the cruising speed of a monarch is about six miles an hour, so they use a combination of air currents and thermals to help them travel long distances, as far as 3,000 miles to reach their winter home. Southern California, in the case of monarchs west of the Rocky Mountains, or Mexico for the eastern population. Hibernation starts to get a little more complex. First of all, it's called different things for different animals. In insects, it's called diapause. In ectotherms, which is a fancy word for cold-blooded animals like reptiles and amphibians, it's called brumation. And even in endotherms, which is the fancy word for warm-blooded animals, there are different levels of hibernation, from torpor, which is a lighter version of hibernation, to what is often called true hibernation, although in all of these animals, their winter shelter is called the hibernaculum. First, let's look at diapause. Diapause is, quite literally, a pause in development. Changes that may take weeks in the summertime are just put on hold during the cold months. The insect remains at whatever stage of development it was in until the weather warms up again. Like other hibernators, they may fatten up in the fall and look for a good place to shelter from the cold, under rocks, under leaf litter, under logs, or in cracks in the bark of trees. Their metabolism slows and they're able to live off their fat reserves, just like other hibernating animals. The spiderlings of many species of spiders may hatch in the autumn, but will remain in the egg sac until spring, or they may overwinter as eggs. Many insects, including spiders and queen bees, go through a process of hardening as the weather gets colder, synthesizing an antifreeze that helps prevent their cells from freezing and lets them tolerate colder temperatures. As I mentioned a minute ago, if you want to get all technical and sciencey, cold-blooded animals don't hibernate, they brumate. The body temperature of these animals is dependent on the air temperature around them. Many species of snake will gather together in dens to get through the winter. In fact, different snake species, like rat snakes and copperheads, for instance, will frequently share a winter den. In Manitoba, Canada, there's a place called the Narcisse Snake Dens. Every fall, somewhere in the neighborhood of 75,000 red-sided garter snakes gather in these limestone caverns to brumate together. I guess the winter is easier to get through with a few thousand of your closest friends. Frogs and toads that live on land may burrow into the ground, ideally below the frost line. Aquatic frogs may spend the winter under the ice. The cold water lowers their metabolism to the point where they can survive by absorbing oxygen from the water through their skin. Like the insects that produce an antifreeze, some species of tree frog will store urine in their blood, which functions in much the same way. With this antifreeze protecting their cells from bursting like they would without the compound, these frogs can actually freeze almost solid to the point where their hearts stop beating, and when the weather warms up, they thaw out, and their heart restarts, and they pick up right where they left off. Turtles will also enter brumation in the fall. 
Land turtles like the box turtle burrow into the ground, again, trying to get below the frost line. Aquatic turtles, like snapping turtles and painted turtles, will bury themselves in the mud at the bottom of a pond or lake and overwinter under the ice. Now you might be thinking, don't turtles have lungs and need to come up for air? How can they survive under the ice? The answer is cloacal respiration, or to put it another way, butt breathing, which is way funnier to say. Like frogs, as the turtle's metabolism decreases, they're able to survive on the oxygen they can absorb through their skin. And the skin with the most blood vessels to accomplish this is around their cloaca, the reptile equivalent of the butt. But as the winter wears on, the oxygen level in the water may decrease. If it gets too low, the turtle's metabolism will switch from aerobic, which means using oxygen, to anaerobic, without oxygen. The problem with anaerobic metabolism is that the body can't flush out metabolic waste products like lactic acid. Have you ever exercised so hard your muscles burn? That's lactic acid building up. Now, if too much lactic acid builds up, the turtle's body will neutralize some of it by borrowing calcium from its shell, kind of like taking a Tums to neutralize stomach acid. An anaerobic turtle emerging in the spring is basically one big muscle cramp and needs to bask in the sun to reboot its aerobic metabolism and eliminate the byproducts of being in an anaerobic state. It's a dangerous time for the turtle because it makes it hard to move and therefore more vulnerable to predators. As I mentioned earlier, when it comes to hibernation in warm-blooded animals, there's two basic levels, torpor and true hibernation. In some ways, they're similar. Both are a way to lower metabolic rate and decrease the need for food, but torpor is short-term, usually lasting only a few days, with only a small drop in body temperature, heart rate, and respiration. True hibernation is long-term, lasting for several months. In true hibernators, body temperature will drop to just above freezing. Respiration and heart rate will also decrease to incredibly low levels. Just to confuse the matter further, some animals are what are known as obligate hibernators. These animals enter hibernation regardless of the temperature or food availability, probably in response to photoperiod, which again is a fancy way of saying the number of hours of daylight. Most true hibernators are obligate hibernators and hibernate for about the same amount of time each year. Other animals are known as facultative hibernators, which means they enter hibernation in response to extreme cold or lack of food or both. The length of their hibernation depends on the weather and food availability rather than seasonal cues. The difference between torpor and facultative hibernation is slight. Basically, torpor is a daily period of inactivity during the coldest hours. If the torpor lasts more than a day, it's considered to be facultative hibernation. Some animals that experience torpor and facultative hibernation are skunks, raccoons, and possums. During cold winter days, these animals become lethargic. While all three of these animals are generally nocturnal, in the winter, you may be more likely to see them out during the day when the temperature warms up. Possums in particular don't venture out during super cold days because their hairless tails and feet are especially vulnerable to frostbite. Some species of bird, like hummingbirds, will experience torpor, usually in response to an unexpected cold snap. When it comes to true hibernation, we usually think of bears first, but bears are actually somewhat unique in their hibernation. They don't really fit the criteria for true hibernators, but they don't really fit the criteria for torpor either. Bears fall somewhere in between. 
Some people call them pseudo-hibernators, and others classify them as facultative hibernators. To understand the difference, let's look at a true hibernation champ and obligate hibernator, the groundhog. Groundhogs, also known as woodchucks, or by my favorite nickname, whistle pigs, are a fairly common rodent. Average groundhog weight is around 8 pounds, but in the fall, they pack on the pounds to get ready for the winter. And when they enter hibernation, usually in October, they may weigh up to 13 or 14 pounds. Now, groundhogs generally have two dens. They have a summer den, which is usually located in a more open area, and a winter den that is located in a more brushy or wooded area. The winter den is dug so that it is below the frost line and will remain a relatively stable temperature just above freezing. Groundhogs enter hibernation in October and depending on their location will hibernate for anywhere between three and seven months. Normal body temperature for a groundhog is about 100 degrees, but during hibernation that drops to as low as between 35 and 40 degrees. Their heart rate will drop to four to 10 beats per minute and respirations to one breath every six minutes. While they may experience some brief periods of torpor or arousal during this time, while they're in this coma-like state, they won't even wake if they're touched. By the time they emerge from hibernation, they will have lost about half of their body weight. So let's compare that to the hibernation of bears. The body temperature of a hibernating bear only drops by about 10 degrees, much less than the 65 degree drop of our groundhog. Their heart rate will decrease to 8 to 10 beats per minute and respiration to about one breath per minute. Even in this state, bears burn about 4,000 calories per day, but they can go without eating, drinking, or going to the bathroom. Their bodies are able to recycle proteins in urine, which lets them both stop urinating and avoid muscle atrophy. One last hibernation fun fact. There is one bird that is considered to be a true hibernator, the whippoorwill. Rather than migrate, this insect-eating bird will snuggle into a hollow log and wait out the winter by hibernating. They can even incubate their eggs while hibernating if necessary. Their body temperature can drop as low as 40 degrees and respiration will decrease by up to 90%. Well, wild wanderers, that does it for another episode of the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. If you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support future episodes, please consider joining our growing number of supporters by becoming a patron. You can do that by heading over to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can do that all without leaving your hibernaculum. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.